Welcome to We Can Be. I'm Megan Andros, the Senior Program Officer for Veterans at the Heinz Endowments. We all know at least one post 9-11 veteran, with millions of them having served our country in the past two plus decades. Communities, neighborhoods, and employers alike have found that our post 9-11 veterans bring enormous leadership skills, technical ability, and work ethic to our world as they make the transition from active military service to civilian life. But the nuances of how they make that transition, including the significant challenges many experience, have until recently largely eluded us. Today's guest is Dr. Daniel Perkins, professor and founder and principal scientist of the Clearinghouse for Military Family Readiness at Penn State University. Danny has led the largest ever longitudinal study of post-9-11 transitioning veterans, the Veteran Metrics Initiative. The initiative has revealed some hard truths about the bureaucratic, financial, health, and vocational obstacles they often face. We'll talk with Danny about the ways we may be failing our veterans at the moment they need us most, and how this groundbreaking data paves the road for a better way. Danny Perkins, welcome to We Can Be. Who are we talking about when we say or use the term post-9-11 veteran? We're talking about those veterans who served in the 20-year war, global war on terror, and mostly folks that had got in post 9-11, not all, and had served their country for a period of time. So individuals who have been in the military, guard, reserve, or active duty since September 11, 2001. And I know the population, you know, we are still using that label for people who are joining today. Correct. We wouldn't be talking about Vietnam veterans or Korean War veterans. Uh, we would be talking about people like yourselves. You served the military and you did that post 9-11 and, and for you in the global war on terror. Sure. I am very personally understand what transition feels like. You led the Veterans Metrics Initiative, the largest ever longitudinal study of post 9-11 transitioning veterans. Your team conducted surveys of veterans at six-month intervals over a three-year period to monitor changes in their overall well-being. One finding that stands out is that only 34% of veterans were deemed successful in their transition from military to civilian life at the two-and-a-half-year mark. For many of us, that statistic is alarming. Can you outline how you identified this number? What we did was we looked at five domains. We looked at the domain of employment, the domain of mental health, physical health, financial, and social relations. And what we did in each of those was we pulled out some criteria. What is successful and what is not? In that definition of successful, we always relied on the veteran's voice, how satisfied were they? So, for example, with their employment, how satisfied are they with the job they have? So that played a role. If they were really unsatisfied, we wouldn't consider that a successful transition. At least it's part of the criteria. We also then looked at other indicators. So did they have a full-time job and were they satisfied? That made up was it successful or not from an employment standpoint. For the physical health, we looked at three different areas. We looked at risk-taking behavior. How much risk-taking behavior were they doing? Were they drinking too much? Were they engaged in, in drug use? Were they doing preventative measures such as eating well, exercising? And then we also looked at the amount of stress in their life. And what we found for that 34% was 34% were successful in three or more of those five domains. Not what we would want, I think. I think we'd want that number to be much more like 60 or 70%. 
And is the sample, the 10,000, representative of the population, meaning Garden Reserve, the number of women? You know, how did you account for that? Most of the time when people hear about research, we automatically think it's representative, which is really not a good decision on our part, because most of the time it isn't. In this study, what we were able to do, since we knew the population of folks transitioning out, we could take the data, and what we did was apply weights to the data so we can talk about what does it mean for the population of transitioning veterans. So we're talking about post 9-11 veterans. We definitely have weighted data for both gender and race and understanding each of those veterans in their capacity. And rank here matters because, you know, when you're talking about officers versus enlisted, oftentimes that means, not always, but means a college degree, which you would assume really impacts a person's transition rate. Right. So one of the weights and one of the covariates we call to weight was uh, pay grade or rank. So we were able to sort of control for that difference. You have dug through and analyzed so much data that you gathered from this study. What findings have really stood out to you or maybe even shocked you? That the military is really an avenue to change your life trajectory in a positive way. So what we find is as, as veterans transition out of the military, most of them, from an educational standpoint, are much better off than their same age mates that did not uh, engage with the military. Whether they get a degree before they get out, and quite a few do, or they then use the post-9-11 GI Bill to pay for them getting a degree after they get out. We have seen that, that they are about two and a half times more likely to have a higher education, post-secondary education, than their civilian peers of the same age. And then the other, maybe turning it to the negative side, and we talked about that number, you know, the number of folks that struggle. And I think it's easy to think of a veteran as a monolithic kind of entity when actually they're not. Obviously, they're very different. And what we also need to think about is they may struggle in one or two areas and be doing well in other areas areas. But over time, you start seeing those cracks widen. Mm -hmm. And we have to figure out how to capture them early enough to sort of thwart the tailspin that may happen if we don't. I know one thing that I found particularly helpful or interesting or, or relevant, I think, is the number of women who experience military sexual trauma while serving, you know, the Department of Defense captures and releases publicly annual reports. Your study found over the course of their service, the percentage of women who are sexually assaulted, harassed, and I believe it was 18% of women. Is that true? Yeah, 18.3%. It's unwanted sexual touching. So I don't want to go as far as, say, assault. But physically touched in a way that they didn't feel comfortable Correct. with, 18%. Seems like something, a meaningful finding. Well, I think it's even more meaningful when you can couple it. How does it play out for other things? So what we see is, and we'll just take your example of a female veteran who perhaps had adverse childhood experiences. And what we learned in our study is if she had three or more of those, as well as had a military sexual trauma, she's nine times more likely to be thinking about taking her own life, to be uh, reporting anxiety or depression symptoms, to be reporting uh, PTSD. Yeah. The same thing we see for males as well. We don't often think of males, but we do know, and we, our data clearly points to, it's about 4% of males having military sexual trauma. And if you add that with them having 
actually three or more ACEs, mm-hmm. adverse childhood experiences, then in fact we see they are six or seven times more likely to struggle from a mental health standpoint. So it's that understanding the pile-on effect. You add adverse childhood experiences, you add military sexual trauma. Then if you put in combat exposure, it's a trifecta. For almost a guarantee, this person is going to struggle at some point in that first three years. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but over 40% of women who join the service, who serve in the military, had pretty significant childhood trauma levels. Yes, and similar to civilian in the sense civilian women, it's around 30%, but for military veterans, we see it's around closer to 40% of them reporting some uh, adverse childhood experiences. What I was surprised with that is the percentage that had three or more. 31% have three or more. 31%, okay. Right, so that's a, a large number of folks that are having multiple childhood traumas. You differentiated between combat trauma, military sexual trauma, and childhood trauma. I have for years been concerned that when we talk about veterans and mental health, we go to it's a combat trauma issue as the default. And what your study, I think, really showed is that's not the case. And the nuances between childhood, combat, sexual trauma, matter in someone's transition. Exactly. And in fact, when you think about it, if we look at any of them by themselves, their impact is not nearly as great as everyone assigns to it. It's really when you start getting a pile-on effect. You know, you put two together and it's just, it becomes a lot of weight for an individual to carry around. So for ACEs, we see if you're below three, actually it has a stealing effect. It actually, stealing meaning hardening effect. The individual learns how to be resilient, how to bounce back and be stronger from that experience. It's when there's too much, right? There's just this pile on that it's very hard for an individual because individuals are all different, right? So some individuals can take more pain than others. Sure. And same thing is true for trauma. Some individuals can take more trauma, but all of us have a breaking point, right? And mm-hmm. so what we're seeing when you start looking at, well, how do these things come together, that we get to a breaking point for individuals. A clear policy issue for me, why are we not screening? Why is the Department of Defense not screening for adverse childhood experiences? You know, I think there'd be a lot of pushback to screen during the recruiting process, but what about when someone shows up at their first duty station? As someone who served in the military, that affects a person's ability to successfully serve in the military, and it affects their ability to successfully transition. And knowing that up front, providing that person resources likely would make them a better soldier and a better civilian once they leave, and just doesn't seem to be, be happening. Right. And I think it may be due to cost. I mean, we have to think about it. Sure. If we ask these questions and we find that 31% of our female soldiers are reporting three or more ACEs, we really are obligated to provide some kind of preventative support for those individuals because we know already that there's a magical number with three. That's a lot, right? And so it's really important for us to uh, do that. So I think it could be that. It could be, you know, if you don't ask, then you have to take no action and you're not responsible for it. I'm going to push it a little further because I think you you open the door and I'm going to kick it open here. I think at the very least, before a, a person transitions out the military, we should be screening. 
to understand what kind of preventative services are required to ensure that an individual has the best foot forward to succeed and take that number of successful uh, veterans from 34% up to 70 to 80%. Why do you think the Departments of Defense or Veterans Affairs have not funded or completed a study similar to the Veterans Metrics Initiative study? Yeah, I'm not sure why they haven't. They've done some, I mean, the VA has done some fantastic uh, research to understand uh, the population they're serving to a degree. Mm -hmm. But most of the time, their research is on individuals that interact with them, which we know is much less than 50% of veterans are interacting with the VA. Sure. One of the biggest limitations of the study we're talking about today is one of our funders was not the DOD. They did not want to play, and we have not been able to take our data, three years of post-military service data on individuals, and link it to their data from their military service, which if we did that, we might be able to better understand some of the challenges of that transition by understanding what they're coming out with to some degree, yeah. and we're not doing that. And so I don't know exactly why they're not. I think your point's well taken. I mean, again, if you ask, you might be obligated to do something. If mm -hmm. you don't ask, you, you get to claiming ignorance, I guess. The Armed Services Committees and the Department of Defense has oversight over the transition process, not the Veterans Affairs Committees and the VA, which for them not to be participating in the study further emphasizes that the structure is problematic and that you know that, that's another pro policy issue you know should oversight of transition shift from the armed services committees to the veteran affairs committees or should it be a third should it be some kind in their interim that helps the warm handoff because what we see is they're not a warm handoff yeah. all right there's this transfer of data at some point but it's not done in any way that I would say that you can have some learnings that go on. The other thing is, why wouldn't the DOD want to know? They're having trouble recruiting right now. Tremendous trouble. Well, part of that reason could be when when we look at folks who have transitioned out, they're not taken care of the way we would want them to be. And so why would I go into something knowing that at the back end, it isn't the kind of support I was expecting? So I think there is a, a call to action for them to think through, well, should we step up our game here and figure out how to do that? It became really clear to me in this study that we do not have a system of transition. We have a series of one-off programs and agencies. I think there are literally eight or nine federal agencies that operate transition programs across the government that are not talking to each other. Oh, I think it's worse than that. Before 9-11, we have a roughly around 4,000 programs that are designed to support veterans. Not necessarily government, often nonprofits, but also many of them receiving funding from government, whether it be state government, local government, or federal, right? Then we get post 9-11, and now we're at about 40,000. That's a pretty large growth, and the worst part from my perspective on that growth is there's no collaboration, as far as I can tell, no ongoing way to learn from mistakes, to learn from successes. We're not evaluating it in any systematic way, and we're certainly not communicating what we find out. There's really a need to think through how do we begin to capture that. We were able to, in this study, begin to evaluate not programs, but program components, what matters within an employment program. Well, we find 
For example, if you're doing resume writing, don't do it in a classroom. It doesn't really make a big difference. But attach it with a mentor or a coach, and you're increasing the likelihood that a person's going to find a job within six months three times. You're increasing the likelihood about two and a half times they're going to go ahead and get a promotion within six months. So we do know some things that work, but that was done with this study and nowhere else. So very few, I would say, and it's an estimate here, but I would say less than 20 of the programs that we look at have done any rigorous evaluation. Wow, that's not good. I just want to say if anybody from the Departments of Defense or Veterans Affairs are listening, uh, we believe strongly that the unsuccessful transition of service members is affecting recruiting. You should call Dr. Danny Perkins. He can help. We know that currently when we look at Americans who are of the age that they could choose to consider joining the military, we know that only 9% of them are considering that. Sure. And I think it's a huge issue that we're going to face on a volunteer force. And if we don't want to have to go back to a draft, I think we need to start thinking through what are the reasons why. Which is an entirely separate podcast. It but I, I feel like it's a worthy conversation to be having, definitely, as things appear to be getting less stable around the world versus more stable. <laughs> One other important thing that came out of the study is that it was really clear the different demographic groups, so the military is one of the most diverse, if not the most diverse organization in our country, it very clearly showed which groups of veterans were doing well and which ones were not, and the gaps were significant. Can you talk a little bit about that? What our data showed is if you were a minority or if you were a female, you were much more likely to struggle with the transition and to not engage with the supports available to you women were much less likely to be successful in the transition across the five domains than males. And then if you look at the race and gender, that just complicates things more. So we find that African-American females struggling mightily, more so than African-American males. And then we see that same thing's true for Hispanic females. So these things play out in different ways. Why aren't we seeing this and figuring out, okay, we know we have to figure out ways to engage them sooner, and we know they're going to not necessarily be the first to engage, so we need to come up with ways to recruit them into these support programs and efforts if we're going to be successful. The current transition assistance program is a one-size-fits-all program, and your, your findings suggest that should not be the way that the transition process is supported. Well, my finding in, in 20 years of implementation science says we can't expect it to work, right? Because the reality is we take one week, give people one week, we hit them with everything, and they're supposed to remember that. Well, first of all, nobody's going to remember all that, right? Instead of saying, let's do a screener, let's understand some of the challenges they might likely have, and then let's tailor those services and connect them to wherever they're moving to, hopefully to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. But connect come them. Yeah, come here, please. Connect them to supports so that we can get them the supports they need. Because what we end up doing is we do it one week and then we send them out. So this research, the Veterans Metrics Initiative, clearly has major implications for current and future post-9-11 veterans and their families. And then I'd say, given some of the things we've talked about, 
defense, the defense of our country sort of moving forward. Why should people who aren't connected to service members or veterans care about this study and its results? How is it relevant or should it be important to them? I think over the last several years, right, we've seen that democracy is fragile and we need to be prepared to defend it. But in order to defend it, we really need smart, able-bodied people to do that. And we can't expect that to continue to happen unless we provide the kind of supports that allow the folks who have done that defense to really be acknowledged, right, in a meaningful way for the long run for their success after they leave service. You know, I'm not one who believes that because you served in the military, you deserve special treatment. I will say, though, seeing the number, the figure that only 34% of veterans are transitioning successfully does make me very much conclude that we're not even doing the bare minimum. And I go back to that saying that Abraham Lincoln said, the country's responsibility is to care for him who hath borne the battle. You know, we're not doing that. And I don't think we're asking for special treatment. But if we think about the amount of training we give uh, service members as they enter in to the service, it seems only logical one would expect that there will be a similar degree of effort on the training as they transition out. And if we look at that, I don't think we see that at all. Well, I mean, it's the difference between nine months of training and four days of death by PowerPoint. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so I think what we're not saying is special treatment. We're, we're asking for what's a reasonable amount of support so that when an individual changes their life and have done the service that you've asked them to do, be given them the opportunity to put their best foot forward. I think it's a fiscal responsibility. You know, as taxpayers, we're investing hundreds of thousands of dollars in each service member to train them, to house them, to equip them, to care for their health. And we're letting it all go because in the transition process, I think I did the math, it's we're like spending $100 per person as they get out. The 200,000 people who leave the service every year, we're spending $100 to help them make that transition. Right, and they're coming back to society and the opportunity for them to contribute, the opportunity for them to pay taxes and to further, you know, our democracy and our ideals are there, but we need to provide them the opportunity to succeed and I don't think we're doing that. Being in the military taught me a sense of altruism. It taught me a sense of taking pride in making things around me better. When we come home, we recognize that our community still need us. We still have these qualities and these traits that make our communities better. In the Army, we learned to serve and the value of service. My family of veterans raised me that way, certainly, that our service doesn't end when we leave the military. I feel a greater obligation now to serve. I have an obligation to continue my service to my community. You have deeper connections to the military community though. Your father served in the military. Can you tell us about his experience and whether it connected at all to your childhood experience? My dad went into the military at age 16. He wasn't much of a school person. He didn't actually like school at all. Didn't do very well at it and his father took his life when my dad was 16. And after he had taken his life, about two weeks of, of the mourning and grieving process, my dad came back to his mom with paperwork and said, Mom, we need to sign this so I can get back to school. When he really was bringing paperwork so he could 
go into the Army at age 16 and not have to wait. There's two things that we did growing up that it's, I think it's clear part of his military training. First of all, you really weren't allowed to sleep in our house past 7 o'clock. It was pretty serious. Well, you wake up early. I do yeah, know that. Yeah, yeah. So maybe that's a carryover. And then the second thing, which I, I always thought was really interesting, is, you know, Memorial Day for us in our house always involved having to go to a local cemetery and clean things up. Huh. So to me, it made a lot of sense. He also credits the Army for getting him to smoke and then getting him to stop smoking. Do you talk to your dad about your work, the work you do today? A little bit. I think he doesn't really fully understand, but he he appreciates it, and I think he's happy about it. I, I will say, you know, if I could go back and do it all over, I think I wish I had considered serving. I didn't, but you can't go backwards on that one. Sure. So the research you've led has identified opportunities for improvements in services for our veteran community, but the coordination and connection of those services to those who need them has been a major barrier. Can you talk about sort of what you've found and what it means for veterans trying to access resources in the real world? What we know is as they're transitioning out, the DOD provides TAP, which is four days. And that's pretty much it, right? They transition out, and what we found when we asked the veterans within the first wave, and even at wave six, so let's just remind everybody, wave one was in the first three months of their transition, wave six is about three years post-transition. The reason they're not using programs, the number one reason is they're not aware of the program, they don't know how to find out about it. The number two reason, is they don't know if they're eligible. And then the number three reason is they just aren't sure where to go. You need a robust navigation system that allows them to have some interaction, have some conversation, and identify, because usually they'll come in and maybe they're having an issue of maybe they're trying to find employment. But in the conversation, you find out that, uh, you know, they're struggling for housing or they're struggling to pay the electric. or So there's usually a comorbidity of problems that a navigation system would allow you to catch early enough before it becomes a massive issue. When I first got out of the Army, you know, the sense of purpose... The meaningfulness was gone. I went from being surrounded by people like-minded, like experiences, to a completely opposite environment where people couldn't care less who you are. The first thing that I missed was just knowing that someone was gonna look out for me and I was gonna look out for them. The challenge of leaving the Marine Corps and entering civilian life is job opportunities. I found myself knocking on many doors and not having opportunities. There was no one to sort of guide you to the supports that you may need. Mainly it was, you don't want to stay in the Army? All right, well, there's the door. Everything that was meaningful about that experience is now gone. So I sat around not knowing really what the future held. Let's be honest that the transition from the service is a major life disruptor, right? You lose your housing, your health insurance, your job. At the same moment when you final out, as it's called in the service, and leave the gates of your installation for the last time, you know, you have a number of needs that you have to navigate. You know, I think many people think, many citizens who aren't uh, spending their time thinking about this, believe the VA has this all in hand. And to be fair to the VA, 
I don't think we can expect them to have it all in hand. Sure, they have a narrow mission. Right, and it's around health. Yeah. You know, it's defined. The health is defined, usually physical and mental. Mm -hmm. But that's it. But what we know when we start looking at what impacts health are all these other social determinants, right? So how do we create a system, a way for the veteran to access all the different supports available to them? And so I think a navigation system makes sense. And by the way, if we can figure it out, it could help us in working with civilians, right? I mean, this is something that can be applied to other Definitely. audiences. Definitely. We've spent a lot of time at the endowments working on care coordination and investing in a network in Pittsburgh called PA Serves. And, you know, I think the reality is transition is very local. Veterans are community members. And, you know, our work in PA Serves so far, we've seen the majority of people that we actually see in the network, their needs that they present with have nothing to do with their military service. You know, these are, we are humans, veterans are humans, and we need connections to resources. It's particularly acute during the moment of transition, though. But you bring up a really good point, and it's a point that I think people don't realize. Transition is a place where things could go wrong, or they could be, it could be a place of great opportunity. Oftentimes, if you can intervene or have a prevention effort at the transition point, we see this with, for example, middle school to high school is a perfect place to really work with young people to help them understand about alcohol and drug use. That's the time to do it. It's not in the middle of high school. It's at that transition sure. point. And we see that transition is a place where there's an opportunity. Is there an individual story that sticks out to you about a veteran who had a really hard time accessing services as they were leaving the military? I don't know if it's an individual as much as in doing presentations and in, in speaking with uh, veterans actually across the country. I, there's a couple of things that really jump out at me. It's amazing to me the number of veterans who wouldn't necessarily call themselves veterans. We see it much higher with females. We also see it with people of color who have served, right? They're, they're just less likely to define themselves that way. But the other part is not wanting to get special treatment or get help. And they don't want to be a burden. They don't want to carry any stigma. But in reality, what I think we haven't created a system in place for them to take action for their own well-being, right? We haven't created a, a real clear pathway. An emotional celebration overnight. After a hard-fought battle on Capitol Hill, veterans and advocates, including John Stewart, gathered with lawmakers to toast the passage of the PACT Act. The motion is agreed to. Providing expanded health care access to veterans sick and dying from exposure to toxic burn pits. A veteran policy issue that recently made headlines was a new law that expanded VA health care and benefits for all generation of veterans from Agent Orange to the 3.5 million post-9-11 veterans who were exposed to toxic chemicals from burn pits and chemical warfare during their deployments. Does the publicity that surrounds a bill like that or a topic like that how does it affect your work? Well, the immediate effect is people reach out and see if you have any information on that. But the other thing is if you don't have it, which we don't, there is an opportunity to change the conversation a bit. We've done that a couple times where we really talk about, well, we don't have information on that. But what we do know is in terms of mental health, these things seem to play out. 
but we're not asking it early enough to deal with it. Pivoting the conversation. So there is opportunities that occur because of those acts that come about, because of the federal government's focusing in on something, but it requires a sort of a pivoting, if at all possible. Because it's a question I also struggle with in my work. How do you stay positive and motivated when your findings aren't being implemented or when the pace of change is so slow? It's people like you and other people you come across that their passion and commitment to this work helps you. So you rely on others. I think we don't do that well as a society, but it's really when you find someone that helps lift you up. It does that. My, I also get a, a great sense of accomplishment when there is a small win, and figuring out a small win is important, I think, for part of that conversation. And now a question that we ask all of our guests. The name of our podcast is We Can Be. What do you think we as a community, country, and world can be? I think we as a society can be a place where we learn from our mistakes and we learn from looking critically at what we're doing well and maybe what we're not doing well. We as a country can be a place where veterans are acknowledged for their service by action to support them to succeed.